0: 1 Samuel chapter 4 For Samuel chapter 4 uh, How do you how do you get through to a teenager? How do you get through to a teenager? How do you get through to a teenager that's learning how to drive? How do you get through to a teenager that's learning how to drive a stick shift? That was my my dad's um, job, to get through to me. Learning how to drive a stick shift as a very stubborn, know-it-all teenager. And uh, my dad's uh, method of doing that is saying, you can drive no other car except the Ford F-150 1985 red truck. And the stick shift in this guy was like two feet off the ground, right? And uh, he said, you know, get your driver's license. You can't drive the other car. You can only drive this car. So I was forced to learn. And uh, there was many driving lessons that were very frustrating, let's say, in the Ford F-150 with my dad. Uh, There was uh, much stalling. There was the uh, up a hill stopped at a stoplight uh, and trying to get going and rolling all the way backwards uh, into cars. Uh, There was the, uh, we go on a drive and dad says, just stop. And he stops, okay, I'm getting out now. And he would just get out of the car and says, I'm walking home. You get there, okay? (laughs) And uh, there was that kind of thing. My dad is a very patient man. Even patient in dealing with his son, learning how to drive a stick shift. I'm glad he was, because now I know how to drive a standard, which is uh, I think comes in handy a lot. But this is the same kind of question we're going to try to answer today, not how you get through to a teenager driving a stick shift, but how do you get through to stubborn people? How do you get through to a stubborn nation, Israel? What does it take? to get their attention. And we are going to see a three-act narrative this morning. And in these three acts, over three chapters, we are going to see the way that God gets through to Israel, or attempts to. So let's read the passage together. We're going to be jumping around from chapter 4 through 6. I'm not going to read all of it, but there will be time. So just know that we're going to go into chapter 5 and 6. We're going to read from chapter 4 just right now. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to the battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And the when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it let, may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, of Eli Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, "What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean?" And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, "A god has come into the camp." And they said, "Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled. Every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for thirty years thousand foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas died. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father this is your word and God I pray that we would uh, know how it can apply to our lives and speak to us today and God I pray that we would not be so stubborn that we would not be able to hear from you what your spirit might be telling us this morning. In your son's name, amen. Well, I feel like maybe I've given you a false promise. I said, you know, you're going to hear about the great leaders of Israel from first, 1 first Samuel. You're going to hear about Samuel and, and Saul and David. And you're ready to hear stories of David and Goliath and, and Saul um, defeating the Philistines and David defeating the Philistines. You're ready to hear all these things and hear about Samuel doing the same thing. But then we get this, you know, we get chapters four through six. They don't mention Samuel at all. In fact, you don't see Samuel defeating any armies or doing any crazy things like that, like him rising to power. Instead, we get this very interesting narrative Probably one you've never heard in church before in your life. Uh, One that is full of some crazy stories. Uh, That's one negative of preaching through the Bible, that uh, you get even crazy stuff. But I'm a firm believer that all parts of the Bible are helpful for us, for teaching, rebuking, and, and training us in righteousness. Even these kind of stories, they can teach us and speak to us. And we're going to see in chapters 4, 5, and 6, this chunk is what I call the Ark Dilemma. And what you're going to see is before the Lord can use Samuel to be a mighty warrior and to speak to the people, God first has to get Israel's attention before they can even hear from Samuel, even they can be directed in the right way. And so we see in chapters four through six, six in this ark dilemma, we see that God is trying to get Israel's attention. And in Act One of the three Acts, we see this principle Principle One of Act One, chapter four. God gets through to his people by teaching them that their methods, no matter how religious, Don't work without him. God gets through to his people by telling them their methods, no matter how religious, don't work without him. Well, we see the problem, don't we? There's a war. A war between this um, coastal nation, the Philistines, and the Israelites. And the Philistines are starting to encroach on Cana, on Israelite land. And we see that 4,000 people have been lost in one day. That's more than ever have been killed in one day on American soil. Even more than the Battle of Antietam, which was the greatest loss we ever had in American history, which was over 3,000 in one day. Here we have 4,000 people lost in one day. And we see that what God does is, throughout Judges, and this came before 1 Samuel, and here God uses other nations to bring judgment against the Israelites. And the typical pattern is when another nation attacks Israel and Israel loses, Israel repents and says, God, we have been going the wrong way. And they turn back to the Lord. But Israel has become so wicked, has become such a problem that corruption is throughout the whole land, throughout all the tribes, and even among the religious leaders, the priests. And so what do they say? Instead of repenting, which God wants, they say, I've, we've got an idea. I know what we should do. We should go to Shiloh and we should get this chest, the ark, this four by two and a half by two and a half, Box. It's worked before, right? They've taken this ark out and they've gone and they've beat Jericho. The walls came tumbling down when you had the ark out. If it worked before, it will work again. And this is their philosophy. So what are they going to do? They go to Shiloh and they get Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who we saw earlier were labeled as worthless and scoundrels, Because they stole from people giving offerings in the tabernacle, for one. And they also slept with the women that came and served in the tabernacle. These were these wicked sons. And said, oh, we'll get these two sons of Eli. And they'll take the ark with us to go defeat the Philistines. So I can see the conversation that the sons might have had or might not have had with their father. Oh, dad, we're going to take the car for a spin. The sports car. And we see that Eli says he's trembling because the ark is gone. You can imagine dad saying, what? You're going to take these worthless scoundrel sons, who he hasn't been able to discipline even before this, um, that he's probably like, great, go ahead, do it. And knowing how bad this is to give them responsible, responsibility over the ark. And these sons treat the ark like a magic box. It doesn't matter what's in it or what it represents. It's just magic. You bring it places, it wins battles. And you have to see the great irony of Hophni and Phineas taking the Ark into battle. Why is it called the Ark of the Covenant? Well, Ark, chest, but covenant because it shows God's promises between Israel, and God. Their, their contract. And inside the ark is the signs of that contract. For example, if you bought a home, you would get a copy of the title and the um, title company would get the other copy so you know what you have signed. In the same way in the ark are the two tablets, two of them, of the Ten Commandments. And one copy to show God and the other sh- copy to show the people. This is the covenant and the promise and the contract that we are in. Now here is the irony. Hophni and Phinehas are carrying the promise of who God is and what the covenant is of what the Israelites are supposed to do. These two men that have disobeyed the very things that are written on that tablet saying we're going to use it for the power to defeat the Philistines. Do you see just the duplicity? Do you see the craziness that is going in their mind? Oh yeah, we're going to use God, even though we don't follow what he says, to defeat other people. And, well, obviously the Israelites bought into this idea because what did they do? They had a great shout. And they had worship up in there, right? You know, they said, praise God. You know, the earth resounded. We are praising, having great worship time. God has come. And now because we are pumped up and we are full of energy and because the ark is here, our magic box, we will defeat the Philistines. Well, how did all that energy and all that magic work? Now we see that almost 10,000, 10 times more than had died before, 30,000 were now dead. And you know what's even worse? The Philistines, they were able to take the ark and carry it out and nothing happened to them. Best baseball movie ever, The Natural. Okay, I'm sorry, if Field of Dreams fans or Major League fans, The Natural is the best baseball movie ever. And in the natural, you get this guy named Roy Hobbs. And and you see that he uh, had an injury early in his life, and it's this his second attempt at the major leagues. And Roy Hobbs, when he was a kid, a lightning bolt hit the tree in front of his house. And from that tree that broke, he made a bat. And the bat on it had a lightning bolt, and it said, Wonder Boy. And Roy comes up to the majors, they think nothing of him cuz he's so old but they let him have a bat and uh, let him have a at bat and he takes this bat wonder boy cranks it and the team says there is something with that bat there is something with that and what they do is that all the team puts the lightning bolt on their jersey and they start playing awesome and they're winning and they're winning But then some character issues happen in Roy's life. And he hits a slump. And he gets injured. And uh, they are losing ground to winning the pennant. And here it is uh, at the end of the movie. And he's finally back at the last game to be able to win the pennant or not. And he's at bat. And he has that Wonder Boy bat. And he hits it. And then, this is the great tragedy, the bat breaks. It splits in two. And you're like, oh. and everyone's like, uh-oh. It's, it's over. It's done. You have to see the movie. It's really good. It's a great story of, of youth. And the bat boy who had made a bat with, with Roy comes up and gives him that bat. It's kind of a sense of innocence or what really baseball is about, what sports is about. Not about you know, magic or anything like that, but about character. And he takes his other bat and then, boom, hits the lights, fireworks, da-da, da da I mean, and then he's running around. It's so, it's, oh, it's great. <laughs> but you see, where was the power? It wasn't in the bat. It was in the man. In the same way, the power of the ark didn't come from its gold. It didn't come from the objects inside. It came from the presence of God. You see, to get through to his people, God took away the methods and religious things that they had to real- for them to realize the power comes from him. You can't simply use God. You can't simply say, God, you are the magic vending machine that I pop in the money and I just, boom, and then out comes what I want. See, God doesn't want you to neglect a relationship with him. We are tied to him in a commitment to him. Not to being with him only when he gives us Things And here's what the Israelites thought. Oh, maybe if we play loud music. Maybe if we shout. Maybe if we have these items. Then we will be powerful. I'm sure glad we don't do that ourselves, right? Oh, maybe if we have the right music, mu- music songs on Sunday. And we are praising out. Maybe if we have the right kind of community groups or the right kind of mercy ministry or the right kind of preaching. If we have these right kind of things, then finally it will work. Insert what you want within the church. And we try methods, altar calls, um, passionate services, Whatever it might be, certain reading, 40 days of purpose. I don't care what it is. We insert these things and these methods to say, if I do these things, then I will get God. And God says this, I will make the things that you think pump you up for me dry. So that you realize the only way that you will receive power is from me and not those things. I sure hope you don't have a CD on, on there and say, oh, if I listen to the CD back from the 90s that I loved, that I was praising Jesus at that time, that's going to pump me up and I'll be fine again. Listen, it's so easy. Sorry, I'm going to just extrapolate for a second. It is so easy for Christians that have been Christians for a little while, three or four years, Say, oh, my life is getting dry. I I try to go back to this verse that I loved or this thing that I loved to give me the power and the strength to move forward. It's just not doing it anymore because God is saying it's not the method that matters. It's me. I want you to come to me. Oh man, it gets bad. Eli hears What has happened? Because the messenger comes in and he can't see. He's blind now. He's old. He's 98 years old. He can't even see. And the messenger tells him, your sons have died, which had been prophesied by Samuel and God earlier. And then he hears the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And this brings him over the edge, literally, where he falls over in his chair and breaks his neck and dies. And then his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, who was pregnant at that time, dies in childbirth. And before, on that same day, in the day that she gives birth, and they tell him it's a son, before she dies, she says, give him the name Ichabod. Kabod, glory. Ich, it is gone. The glory of God is gone. It has been taken away From Israel. You see Eli. And his daughter-in-law. And these people were like. Oh it's over. God is no longer present. Little did they realize. The very faithfulness and promises. That was in the very box. Where they found their, their faith. That in the box. What was there? The ten commandments. And what else was in there? Manna. And what did the manna show? The manna showed while the Israelites were wandering in the desert after they had left Egypt, that God would provide for them. He would be with them even when there was no food around. He would provide food for them so that inside the ark, inside this box, was this food to show. I will be faithful to you. But Eli didn't see it. Phinehas' daughter didn't see it. That God is doing a work upon Israel by having the Philistines be the judge upon them to show that they need to get to a place where they finally repent. It's act one. Act two. Don't worry, the two act, the two's a little shorter. Act two. To get through to people, God shows that all other gods fall before him. Act 2, to get through to people, God shows that all other gods fall before him. Chapter 5, if you have your Bible, I hope you're looking right here. Chapter 5, when the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But then they rose early on the next morning. Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Well, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the Ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the Ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around us to the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So this is great superstition, right? This Old Testament superstition. It's really a battle between Dagon, this uh, god of corn, and the ark, which is the god of Israel. It's just two different magic objects Going against each other. The thing is, there is a difference between the Ark of the Covenant and these other idols of other nations. See, God attaches himself to objects in certain periods of time. Like, what? The burning bush? He attaches himself to a whirlwind. And he attaches himself for a longer period of time to the Ark of the Covenant. Does that mean that God is the Ark? That God is the bush? That God is the whirlwind? No. Now hear me please. The ark on top had that gold cover. And on top of that were two cherubim. Two angels. And the two angels were looking at each other. And there was space in between them. The thing is, they were looking at the presence of God. God would dwell upon the top of the ark. Was there any figure there? No. God is not manifested through a figure, through a thing. God is omniscient, omnipresent. He is everywhere. And so in the same way as these angels look at nothing, it is saying that we do not worship the creation. We worship the creator. And the difference between paganism, I'm not trying to make it pejorative here, the difference between paganism and Christianity and Judaism is that in Judaism and Christianity, we worship the creator, not the creation. And in paganism, there is a worship of the creation. Example, Dagon, like I said, the god of corn. And that is what was the Philistines were worshiping, that god. The God of the corn crop. And the thing is, for the pagans, like the Philistines, they would bring in the ark, not to show that the God of Israel did not exist, but to show that, okay, there's many different gods, but our God is triumphant. He works better than Israel's God. That's what they were trying to show by bringing the ark into that place. But here's the thing. Had the glory of God departed? It had not. God's glory was still there. And it would triumph over any other God because they are the creation, not the one creator. And what happens? Well, the first night, Dagon falls on the ground and they probably said, oh, that's weird. Some kind of wind came and blew it over and they put him up again. And the next day they come in and what happens? His head is broken off. His hands are broken off. Meaning the seat of his power and his hands, his knowledge in his head has been broken. Now they're going, oh, trouble. And then plagues break out. And we see that has meaning to them because they remember, oh, I remember what happens with the, Phil- with the Israelites' God. What does he do? He brings plagues upon the people like he had done to the Egyptians. He's doing the same to us. And what's their solution? Oh, we'll just pray the ark to different cities, right? Maybe it's just this city that has a problem. That makes sense. Maybe it's the drinking water or some kind of disease. No, they take it to another city, happens there. And then when they take it to the third city, what does the third city do? What, what are you doing? Do you hate us too? I mean, would we take it to Milwaukee or maybe Chicago? Oh wait, wait What? These Appletonians hate us. Don't bring it here. See, no matter if you worship me or not, God says, when you face me in my glory, all your gods will fall. No matter whether you worship me or not, when you are up against my glory, all your gods fall. Will fall. See, Isra- the Israelites presumed on the power of God. The Philistines defy the power of God. I'm sure many of you have corn gods around your house, probably. No, we don't have that. We have cheese gods right on our heads. <laughs> Sorry, that was that was low, low. So, um, <laughs> but maybe the gods of comfort. Or health? The God of looks? The God of security? What happens when those gods are put against the glory of God? I find when I'm at weddings or around people... uh, or friends that might be uh, very far from the church or very far from Christianity, maybe yourself. And I call them epiphany moments in people's lives. It usually happens when they've had one too many beers. And usually it all comes flooding out to the pastor, right? Man, my life is a wreck. I'm done doing the drinking like I'm doing. I'm done living this way. And when they finally are put up against the glory of God, they say, this is not working for me. Maybe you've had that epiphany moment where you've just been broken, man, my marriage is just not working. This relationship is not going, my job is just not where it's supposed to be. And I'm just hitting against my God's not working. And Thing is, sometimes those epiphany moments lead to a place where they say, I am not working on my own. I need to rely on God. But many times what happens is in those moments, people just go, you know, this is just a bad time in my life. Oh yeah, that was a night that was just really bad. I, I'm, or they call me later. I was just having a hard night. I probably said some crazy things. I'm sorry. I'm better now. And rather than taking those moments to realize their gods do not work and relying upon the God that does, they just take that glory of God and send it away. You know what's worse is they might do the things that the Philistines did which is one of the most interesting and crazy things in the scriptures that they uh, made casts of these tumors and uh, bronzed them in gold, right? Put gold over them and then also they took mice And uh, put gold over them. And they said, give this to the Israelites. These are our guilt offerings. This is to assuage the God of Yahweh. These golden mice and golden tumors. Crazy. But is it that crazy what sometimes we say? Oh God, I I I will not drink for a month. Oh, the next person I date, I won't find them at the bar. I'll find them um, at church, maybe. Oh, God, I I will assuage you. I I will make sure that my next job I get, I'll give at least 5% to generous things. When we're in bad places, we say, God, I'll assuage you. I will give you things so that you will not be over me. That's not the way it works. that is the way that they do it. And uh, just to really prove if God is really God, they check one more time. They say, okay, take this ark. We'll put it on a cart and we'll put it onto two cows. If it really is from God, we'll just let the cows go and they could wander anywhere. And if the cows go back to Israel, we know it's from the Lord. And what do those cows do? They go directly to Israel, to the town of Beth Shemesh. And do the Philistines repent and say, God, you are God, we are wrong? No, <laughs> even when that happens. So number two, God gets through to his people by showing that all other gods fall before him. And lastly, act three. God gets through to us by showing He does not play favorites. Look with me. Verse 14, chapter six. "The cart came into the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh, and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on the day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for um, Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beshemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. You see what happens here? The ark returns to Israel, and they're celebrating, they're sacrificing, look what's happened, and they do something wrong. They uncover the ark and look upon it, which you're not supposed to do, and uncover it and look inside of it. And it's a huge blow what happens. Seventy men in that town die. Come on! I mean, it's back to where it's supposed to be. These guys have a good heart. They're they're just celebrating you, God. They're just celebrating the the ark coming back. Please hear me. God does not play favorites. And when we think, oh, my heart was in the right place, man, I'm doing okay things, and we break his law, it doesn't matter Who you are. He is holy. You are not God, and He is. And they beg the question who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? What is the answer to that question? No one. No one is able to stand before a holy God. We are so good at this in America. Rules don't apply to me. God, you don't realize the kind of life I lived or the kind of people or family I grew up in. You don't understand, God, the pressure I am under in my life. God, you don't know the kind of things that I have faced. Rules don't apply to me. Your holiness doesn't apply to me. Christian, hear this. His holiness does apply to you no matter where you're at. And if you are fooling God and saying, well, I have my life this way and I live the rules the way I want to live, you are fooling yourself. You know, there's one time a year that the, the holiest person of Israel was to come into the tabernacle to the back. And he would come into the Ark of the Covenant. And this priest, he would take the blood of a sacrifice and he would put it over what's called the mercy seat. That space between the two cherubim. And he would place that blood up top of that ark to show that for me to be in front of a holy God, there needs to be a sacrifice. To me to be in front of God, there needs to be a guilt offering that is placed. You know, there is no image between the two cherubim. But Hebrews says this, a book that talks about the ark a lot. It says, there is an image of the invisible God. There is someone that sits upon the mercy seat. There is one whose blood has been sacrificed upon that place. And it is Jesus Christ. How can we approach a holy God. We can approach a holy God because he has given us his son as a sacrifice that we can come to him. You know, finally, it gets through to Israel. Finally, they're starting to realize that they have no chance of going against a holy God, that they need to repent and as we'll go on in chapter 7 and 8, we see that Israel finally does repent and turn to God. You know, this might sound like fire and brimstone preacher, right? The holiness of God. That's really what that, these chapters are about. But I'm telling you, you know how God really gets through to us? He gets through to us through kindness. Kindness. What does it say in Romans? His kindness leads to repentance. The way that God gets through to us is by putting his son as his image bearer. That we can approach a holy God because he took the sins that we have upon himself. So that we can approach this vast and holy God. And so God, we come to you only because of what your son has done for us. We trust in him. I hope, I hope, I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I don't know where you're at. But I would hope maybe today might be the day that you say, I need to rely upon Jesus Christ. I need him to face a holy God. Let that break through to you. And if, Maybe you're making that commitment for the first time this morning. Here is the Presbyterian altar call, okay? This is it. When we come forward, this isn't magic. This isn't method. This is Christ. Christ spiritually dwelling here that we would see his image in our lives. And if you are not there, don't partake. And you know what? The warning that is here in 1 Samuel is again in 1 Corinthians. What happens to those that are fooling God? Even in the church, what does it say in 1 Corinthians? Judgment will be upon you. Physical judgment. I'm not talking Old Testament stuff. I'm talking New Testament stuff. And you might think, I'm scaring you but I am trying to be a pastor that is guarding this table. If you take this in an unworthy manner, you drink judgment upon yourself. Do business before God this morning. Maybe you can do it right now by saying, God, I have been hiding. I confess my sin to you. And come forward and partake in these elements. Well, let us prepare our hearts, shall we? The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord.